0: Welcome back to the next episode of Arbitral Insights, which will address the key updates to the 2021 ICDR arbitration rules. I'm JP Duffy. I'm an international arbitration partner based in New York that acts as both counsel and arbitrator in international arbitration seated around the world under a variety of governing laws and arbitral rules, including the ICDR arbitration rules. With me today is my colleague, Danny Avila II he's an international arbitration associate based in Houston who handles international arbitrations in both English and Spanish around the world under a variety of governing laws and arbitral rules as well under the ICDR arbitration rules. And joining us today is our guest who is Luis Martinez and Luis is currently the vice president of the International Center for Dispute Resolution, the ICDR as we've been mentioning. Luis is responsible for business development in Latin America europe the caribbean and the east coast of the united states as well as the administration of their international cases out of miami with an icdr director as the vice president of the icdr lewis has a unique perspective on the amendments found in the new icdr rules and we are thrilled to have lewis offer that perspective today so with that i'll turn it over to danny
1: hi louis this is danny by way of background as we know the icdr rules were last amended in 2014 with some significant changes, such as discouraging American discovery procedures, rules on uh, joinder of parties, consolidation of multiple proceedings, exadata procedures, and updating the rules on emergency proceedings, which I believe you mentioned the ICDR was a pioneer in being the first institution to create the emergency arbitrator in 2006. Now the ICDR has published the 2021 rules, which recently went into effect this year. I'll turn it back to JP to start the discussion on the most significant amendments and what prompted them.
0: Yeah, you know, Luis, I'd love to just begin with that. What, what prompted the ICDR to issue the 2021 amendments?
2: Well, JP, first of all, let me thank you and Danny, and it's a pleasure. I want to thank Reed Smith for putting this together for us. So to start off, the main reason, uh, and there were a couple of factors we had to consider. First of all, you know, the last revision was 2014. So we did want to see how that last revision had played out, what lessons we had learned since 2014, what additional tweaks because of the experiences we've had in administering cases pursuant to that version. So we captured that information. And then uh, it's consistent with, in fact, the uh, reasons we did the 2014 revision Certainly to enhance transparency, that was clearly an important factor for us. One of the main things we always want to make sure is that every step we are doing administratively behind the scenes is reflected in the rules, authorized by the rules, so there are no surprises and all our users are clear on how the ICBR system will actually proceed and go forward. Now, In the 2014 revision, we didn't even touch the mediation rules. So this time around, those were also looked at and revised. For both arbitration and mediation, we wanted to incorporate what is currently best practices. Again, we all know that this field evolves, trends change, and we wanted to capture those. And again, with the 2014 revision, as well as this last one, we wanted to incorporate Anything we can do for process efficiencies, enhancing economy, at the end of the day, doing all possible to reduce the time and costs
0: of the ICDR system. That's great. And the ICDR has obviously been a leader in that area in, in making sure that efficiency is first and first and foremost. So that's a wonderful thing to hear. So with that, let's jump into to a few of the specific changes that have been made. And I wanted to begin with early disposition. So Article 23 of the 2021 Amendments now allows for the early disposition of claims or issues, which is otherwise referred to as early determination, and which is something that's been a successful feature of the AAA commercial rule since I believe 2013. It's also a topic that was addressed in the recent amendment to both amendments to both the ICC and the LCIA rules. What prompted the introduction of Article 23, and how do you envision that operating? Great question.
2: As we all know, this is a topic of discussion for several years now. I I do want to note that the previous, the 2014 rules, did not specifically prohibit these types of motions for early disposition, and we did see them uh, from time to time. But quite frankly, we did hear more from our users that this feature would certainly promote efficiency, and uh, we felt it was time to incorporate them in the rules. We did have our lessons learned as well because our commercial rules, and as you know, we do administer the commercial arbitration rules of the American Arbitration Association under international arbitrations when it's called for in the agreement. And they had a rule, R33, regarding dispositive motions, and we saw that it worked well. So looking at the way the rule actually plays out, as you can read through the rule, you do see that the party must first actually seek the leave of the tribunal for any application. And the particular article includes the standards that you need to have a reasonable possibility of succeeding, and that it's going to dispose of or narrow a specific issue in the case where it is more efficient and economical to dispose of that issue at this time, rather than just to leave it for the final award on the merits. So we think it works well uh, from the commercial rules. We thought it was time, and now it's clearly in there in the international arbitration rules. That's great.
1: And Luis, I wanted to discuss, uh, I see that the in the 2021 amendments, the threshold for expedited procedures doubled from 250000 to 500000 And I see that the, the ICC also raised the cap on its expi- expedited procedures from two to $3 million. What prompted the ICDR to raise the ceiling for expedited procedures?
2: Well, the thing we looked at was a number of factors. First of all, the rest of the expedited procedures were not touched in this revision. We thought the 2014 procedures laid it out well with what we wanted to accomplish. First and foremost, it's up to the parties to agree to these where they can, in fact, use them for larger cases. So there is that flexibility. But the threshold was increased because we looked at our caseload impact as well. So we felt that 500,000 was a more reasonable number for the amounts of cases we think would fall under there, which would trigger their application. We didn't go higher than that because we felt, as I said, the parties can easily adopt the expedited procedures in their entirety, or they may even adopt specific provisions. It has accelerated timeframes. In the 2014, we were clear as well that we introduced deadlines for the rendering of the international awards if it's 100000 or less, it's deemed that the case is going to proceed based on documents only. In fact, even at the $500,000 level, we don't encourage hearings, although it is easier in this new environment of virtual hearings becoming much more commonplace. But if there is a hearing or if it's based on documents, the award is expected within 30 days from that hearing or the last submission of the documents, so I think in totality, if you look at it, it's a good tool. You can decide to use it in cases over 500,000, and we're going to apply it in cases 500,000 or less.
0: That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. I think that's a really good balance to strike there in terms of the threshold. Lewis, I want to talk now about emergency measures. Emergency measures were first added in the 2006 rules but Article 7 has now been updated to include a requirement that the party seeking relief must show that they will suffer injury or prejudice if the request is not granted. What prompted that change, and how do you envision it altering current practices?
2: Well, as you know, we actually introduced that emergency arbitrator mechanism as far back as 2006, and um, it was extremely well-received as we all know um, all the world's major institutions now include this emergency arbitrator mechanism. It makes all the sense in the world because if you need uh, provisional and conservatory measures at the time of filing, uh, prior to this, your only options were wait for the tribunal, which would frustrate uh, the emergency measures you might be seeking, or go to court, which was inconsistent with the desire to stay within the arbitral framework in the first place. So we didn't really touch the body of the rule. Uh, We've had, for example, in 2020, we had 85 applications just under the international arbitration rules. We also, as I said, the emergency mechanism appears in our commercial rules. And in total, I think the number since 2014 is over 700 of these. But we did note that in these awards issued by the emergency arbitrator, there was uh, a similar analysis that was conducted in terms of their jurisdiction, the uh, prima facie establishment of the case. They looked at urgency. They looked at imminent danger uh, of serious prejudice and proportionality. So we thought we, we could tweak it and add some standards from a requirement basis. Prior to that, in the 2014, all the party had to do was state the reasons why that emergency relief is required, and why, in fact, are they entitled to them. So I think the revision improved on the rule by requiring the moving party to state what injury or prejudice they will actually suffer, as well as why the relief is sought and why they are entitled to them. So we wanted to tweak it to reflect the practice, to reflect some standards, but it is flexible enough uh, for an international arbitrator considering various jurisdictions to consider what tests and how they will analyze whether or not they're going to be granting the particular emergency relief in question.
0: Yeah, I think that's really useful guidance. And having sat as an emergency arbitrator and relatively recently in an ICD arbitration as well, I think having that specific level of guidance is useful because that is oftentimes a threshold question That the parties may not have fully considered, you know, what really is the basis for this application and why now? So very, very helpful.
1: Luis, I wanted to discuss, while the ICDR rules always have afforded tribunals, the theory of competence, competence. Under Article 21, now the ICDR states that the tribunal has the authority to decide issues of arbitrability without the need to refer such a matter first to a court. What prompted that change and what role Does the ICDR play in arbitrability and jurisdictional challenges?
2: You know, that's a a great question. And it really is more of an impact in this jurisdiction in the United States. As we all know, it's clear that arbitrators under the doctrine of competence, competence can rule on their own jurisdiction. But we have this issue here with the publication of the restatement of international arbitration law where it does say that a tribunal can, in fact, rule on its own jurisdiction. But you need to have clear and unmistakable agreement of the parties that the tribunal has that authority. And the restatement goes further saying that just by incorporating a reference to a set of rules in your arbitral provision, that in and of itself is not an exclusive delegation. It does not present clear and unmistakable evidence of a party's intent to provide the tribunal with that authority mm-hmm. we know the supreme court is not weighed in specifically on what constitutes clear and unmistakable evidence so we thought we would go as far as we could from an administrative viewpoint and we added the language that arbitral tribunal has authority to decide issues of arbitrability and jurisdiction without any need to refer such matters first to a court. How it'll play out, we shall see. I don't think we could have done anything much stronger than that uh, verbiage, but we wanted to try to remedy this situation, at least for this jurisdiction.
0: That's very helpful. And I think hopefully in conjunction with the existing case law, that will continue to operate the way that, that everyone would hope it would. Let's talk then a bit about non-party interest and third-party funding, if we could. So in Article 14.7, which falls under the article dealing with arbitrator independence, there's now an explicit reference to the obligation to disclose a non-party interest in the arbitration, such as third-party funding or any other economic interest a third-party might have in the outcome, which is an issue that the ICC rule updates addresses as well what prompted this change and what type of economic interest beyond third-party funding have to be disclosed? And I'm going to throw a third part in here for you, which is, <laughs> what motivated the choice to place it under Article 14?
2: Interesting questions. And the reasoning really, there are a couple of things we had to consider. First of all, it's a given now that third-party funding is certainly part of the international arbitration landscape, arguably increasing, especially in the larger cases and other specific caseload. First of all, as an administrator, our policy is very broad uh, regarding disclosures. The rules require that the arbitrators be impartial and independent, impartial, not predisposed to any of the parties in question in the case at hand, independent, not having any financial interest. As an institution, we don't apply the IBA guidelines on conflict of interests our position is based on a broad disclosure policy. It's the party's process. Make your disclosures, even de minimis disclosures. They become part of the record. We send it to the party, see if they object or just really submit. don't submit any comments and waive that disclosure. So we have a clear record starting off the arbitration, which is really important because you don't want to get to the end of this process and find that there's a disclosure issue that was not made and you might open that potential award after so much time and money has been spent to some potential mischief or have it attacked and perhaps not enforced. And, of course, from an institutional viewpoint, there's nothing worse than that. You do get that black eye, especially for something like not handling disclosures properly. So that's very important to us. We thought in this case, though, there are a couple of things, because there is debate whether third-party funders should be disclosed or not. It is optional in that it's on the application of a party or on the tribunal's own initiative, but we do uh, have the tribunal first consult with the parties. And the idea then is to see and disclose any economic interest in the outcome of the arbitration and to identify the relevant person or an entity it doesn't necessarily have to be a third party funder too you could have potential insurer uh, uh, additional non parties that may have some economic interest in the particular outcome so it goes to disclosures knowing who the players are knowing where there are economic interests such that in fact that particular person has an interest in the outcome of the case and that way everyone knows who everyone is, and what everyone's position is. We just thought it was a safer approach. We thought it's consistent with the trends we're seeing. And we put it under Article 14, specifically, again, to reinforce the whole ICDR policy and approach towards impartiality, independence, and
0: disclosures. Got it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of what you're saying is extremely consistent with what Claudia Solomon said when I discussed the ICC rules um, updates on these points as well. So I think that's clearly a, a consistent trend amongst institutions. Let's then talk for a second, if we could, about consolidation. So Article 9 expanded the power to consolidate arbitrations between related parties rather than just the same parties and gives the ICDR the power to appoint a consolidation arbitrator, which is an issue that was also addressed in the ICC rule amendments. How do you envision these new powers operating, and what do you expect the practical impact to be? Well,
2: this revision actually was motivated by, again, a couple of factors. First of all, it was clearly some of our own experiences where we actually wanted to do the consolidation. We thought it was definitely the more efficient way to proceed But the parties didn't put in an application for it. And the rules previously, the 2014, did not provide us with the authority to appoint a consolidation arbitrator on our own initiative. So we needed that to be tweaked. Memory serves. I I can think of three examples where we thought that we needed to do that and we just weren't able to do so. So that was tweaked. And then the idea was also to expand uh, again, in the interests of procedural efficiencies, where it really makes sense, we wanted to expand it to related parties as well, and not just limit the consolidation arbitrator to the same parties, which really tied their hands a bit in terms of their analysis. The rule, I think, is uh, well-drafted. It lays out for the users how the consolidation arbitrator is to proceed, what factors they are to consider. And uh, I think now they have the tools necessary to be able to do these things efficiently. And we can call upon a consolidation arbitrator too, when we think it's appropriate.
0: Excellent. Thank you.
1: Luis, I want to step back a little bit. And and now that we're kind of discussing, you know, COVID and everything that's going on in the pandemic, you know, I think uh, most international arbitration uh, lawyers can agree that before the pandemic virtual hearings and, and, just cost and efficiency were big issues in international arbitration that were already moving towards going virtual in hearings and virtual in in platforms. How did amendments to Article 26 and 32 help amplify or speed up that process to go more virtual for international arbitration proceedings and hearings?
2: Well, let me start off by saying that we did not have any prohibitions to proceeding virtually. In fact, the rules did allow an arbitrator to proceed with virtual hearings to consider technology uh, where appropriate. Uh, there were concerns of due process, so the arbitrators would, in fact, have to consider whether there's equal access to technology and how the, how the virtual hearings would take place. We did put out a set of, of virtual hearing guidelines and documents. We actually put out a uh, proposed model order with issues that the arbitrator should discuss early on with the parties considering virtual hearings uh, and go through and decide how it will proceed, how testimony will be taken and all the related issues of platforms to use, etc. And those documents, in fact, you can find on our virtual hearings uh, page off the icdr.org. But we thought again, since we were, Going through the revision, we wanted to have express provisions that clearly allow for video, audio, or other electronic means during the proceedings. I firmly believe that they'll be here to stay, maybe at least more so during the early stages of an ICDR case where the administrative conference or the preliminary hearing with the tribunal, the first hearing that the parties are involved in as well, where we're really discussing procedural Uh, the framework of the arbitration, the calendar, uh, whatever issues the tribunal may have to deal on early on. But then later on, when you have the hearings on the merits, perhaps parties, we'll see, we'll start using hearings in person again. I think probably we'll see a hybrid going forward. But I mean, that was the reason for the rules to be clear to reflect, especially the lessons that we've learned this past year.
1: That makes sense. And and especially when you have parties that are different countries and arbitrators are in different countries, it's very important to be able to have, you know, an efficient way to bring everyone together for, I guess, the less important hearings or procedural occurrences.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think even with witnesses, you know, if they're coming in for one day just to be heard on a specific subject or cross-examined, I think the parties are going to insist on economies and consider using these platforms, For example, we have really focused on the Zoom platform. Our documents are set up for that with all the issues and settings, and we've been trained. We have a group that we refer to as Zoom champions, if you will. But we're on Zoom every day and doing hearings all the time, and it seems to be working well.
1: I agree. I agree.
0: Luis, thanks so much for that. That's very helpful. I'd like to talk a bit then about the introduction of the International Administrative Review Council in Article 5. What is the IARC and what prompted its development and what what will its role be?
2: The uh, IARC, again, this is another example of where we wanted to address transparency because this is a process that we've actually had in place now, if memory serves, for a couple of years. In fact, it could be longer. And it's really the way we handle certain administrative determinations, primarily challenges, although other decisions that could be handled by this committee are disagreements among the number of arbitrators for a particular case. Perhaps the clause is silent. There might be a disagreement regarding the seat for the international arbitration. There might even be a disagreement regarding the initial filing requirements as required by the rules. Uh, Perhaps one party is alleging that the filing party didn't complete or didn't submit all the requirements as listed in that particular article. So we said we wanted to really be consistent with these determinations. We wanted to handle them as quickly as possible. So the committee actually has a standing meeting every Tuesday at three o'clock. The committee is comprised of a former general counsel and always two other uh, ICBR executives to handle these. The case director will prepare the information packet for us with the issue at hand, with the relevant documents, the comments submitted by the parties, a list of the arbitral provision and whatever other relevant documents are needed for us to make our determination. The case director presents the factors that we're going to consider, and then we try to make a determination Consistency is very important for us, a clear uh, application of the rules. uh, So we don't deviate with that and we keep a record of how we're making these determinations. We do not provide reasons for these determinations. We still believe that we are completing our mandate as administrators. Our job is to make sure that the tribunals are appointed, cleared of conflicts, etc., and to handle these things as quickly as possible without stopping writing and submitting our reasoning and perhaps opening another round when clearly we are impartial, we don't have any interest in the outcome of these determinations, our interest is getting this case moving as quickly as possible to a resolution. So that's basically how it works. And uh, we're quite happy with the results. And the fact that they're done weekly really don't provide the parties with additional delay to get these things resolved.
0: That's great. That's great. Let's then talk about award publication. Article 40 now allows for the publication of sanitized awards and an interim, as well as interim decisions, if the parties do not object in writing within six months of the award being issued. What prompted that addition, and how do you envision that operating?
2: Well, as you know, JP, in writing awards, and uh, you've written some good ones, they unfortunately these wonderful awards written by skilled arbitrators in various business sectors that could be so helpful to advance how these cases could be resolved, to discuss how particular provisions, contractual provisions are interpreted, Uh, it just, they don't see the light of day. And people, uh, unfortunately, don't benefit from the scholarly work, the legal analysis that sits in many of the file cabinets of the institutions, or at the end of the day of the party. So we've really been keen on trying to see if we can increase the body of awards that are in the public uh, for for study and for the reasons I've mentioned. So the 2014 uh, version already had allowed for the publishing of select awards that were public, but we felt that we wanted to take it a step further and with clear notice to the parties now, we're going to put in probably two or three times notice to the parties that uh, unless they object within six months, if we think the award is has some very good value that we would like to be able to publish it, we will do so unless they object. And we will ensure that we have a clear record reaching out to both sides, making sure that they've had an opportunity to object. But if they don't, then uh, that really helps us in trying to get some more international awards out in the marketplace. You you know that our commercial rules uh, do not contain any similar language. They have a broad privacy standard. It, it is such a level that you really can't do anything with under the commercial arbitration rules in terms of publishing. So we thought this tweak would uh, perhaps present us with the possibility of increasing the awards that we can have published for the reasons mentioned.
0: I think that strikes a really good balance between preserving confidentiality, but also allowing parties access to precedent that could be very useful. So I think it's a very welcome, um, a very welcome addition to the to the marketplace. Louis, you've been so generous with your time. Before we before we move on, is there anything else you want to highlight in the in the recent amendments that you think are worth our listeners knowing about? Well,
2: thanks. Yeah, a couple of points I think are important. Uh, We also stressed in the arbitration rules that uh, the arbitrators now have to really take notice and discuss, uh, probably at the preliminary hearing or a very early stage, issues related to cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection. We've done a great deal of work in those areas with cybersecurity, with our arbitrators, with training programs. As you know, when we initiate a case, we actually send out a cybersecurity checklist. Uh, So these are issues we want the tribunal to bring up with the parties and have them discuss it openly and perhaps memorialize it in their first procedural order as to what agreements they made. We did bring in another article as well that, as you know, in international arbitration, the fees are supposed to be paid by the parties in equal shares. And the rules did already provide that if one side isn't paying, let's say the claimant isn't advancing their share of the deposits, the respondent can actually advance those costs on behalf of the non-paying party so the arbitration can, in fact, proceed. Well, uh, we added now a provision under Article 39 that a party doing so, advancing those deposits, can actually request the tribunal to make a separate award for any fees they pay in advance on behalf of another side. And uh, interestingly, already the rules, and many people don't know this, that if a party is not paying their share of the fees, for example, the claimant doesn't pay their share of the deposits, they and the other side does, their claim is deemed withdrawn. So we think that's consistent because the parties agreed voluntarily to enter arbitration and knew they were going to have to pay their fair share of the costs and equal shares. So if they're not paying and someone else is paying, that other party shouldn't pay for that other side's claims. Now, due process, by the way, is protected in that if the respondent, let's say, pays the claimant's fees and has a counterclaim, the claimant will be allowed to defend. So I think that's important. And then lastly, just we didn't really touch upon it, but there was a good deal of work done on the mediation rules. We did include a reference, again, to using video and technology, we added some positive language in that the ICDR will be more proactive in helping the parties find the mediator that they were seeking. We uh, rearranged and clarified the duties and responsibilities of the mediator, citing that it's a more narrowly referenced and focused, and also to let the parties be clear on their role and the authority. Uh, from an efficiency point of view, we included now the fact that there will be a mediation proceeding with a preparatory conference. We're going to look at the use of technology, how document exchange will take place, recognize that there will be ex parte meetings, especially during the caucuses. All that was listed. And then I think a novel article that you'll find under the mediation rules is M14. During the termination of uh, a mediation, we actually referenced the uh, Singapore Convention. And we said that parties may in fact request from the mediator or the ICDR to issue an attestation that a settlement was actually reached in the course of the mediation to assist with such enforcement. Now, we do recognize that we don't have the enabling legislation yet for the Singapore Convention. Uh, A great number of countries have signed the convention, but We haven't seen how the enabling legislation will play out yet, but we think we wanted to get in front of it and put this positive message on there that we should consider this because we're doing all we can to promote mediation. It has great value, and we think this type of language may encourage more parties to try to use these particular rules to try to resolve their disputes in the mediation process.
0: I think that's great. And that is so forward-looking and is just another clear indication as to how how advanced the ICDR rule amendments are in this instance. Well, good. That's, that's all very helpful. And thank you so much. That concludes our discussion of the 2021 amendments to the ICDR rules. I want to thank our guest, Luis Martinez, for his invaluable insights. And I want to thank you for listening. You should feel free to reach out with any questions you might have. And we look forward to having you tune in for future episodes in the series. Thank you. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie Mcardle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Jose Estigarraga at jia at readsmith.com.